All new at five, spooky security camera footage. Yeah, a Metro Atlanta mom says it actually shows her son's ghost. CBS 46's Yasmina Alston spoke with some paranormal investigators to see if it's real or if it's a hoax. Here in Canton, Georgia, a group of paranormal investigators look into the supernatural. So it was only right that we asked them about what a mom says she saw in her security footage. It's definitely unexplainable. A Metro mom says her home security footage captured her son's ghost. Definitely tell that in the photo there is a human figure. On Facebook, Jennifer Hodge posted that she was watching TV with her daughter when an alert on her phone said your entryway camera saw someone. Here's what it showed. No one's around at the time and something gets captured that we can't explain. Hodge posted that the figure looks just like her son Robbie who died in 2016. Hodge told media outlets her son died of an accidental drug overdose. Now we showed the pictures to paranormal investigators Heather Thompson and Stephanie Forte with Paranormal Georgia Investigations. They agree with Hodge. Okay, now I'm understanding what she's talking about, but it was definitely a human figure. I mean, there wasn't anything questionable as to, okay, maybe that's a curtain that's billowing or maybe that's, you know, an appliance. That, that's definitely a human figure. The two are part of a group that investigate homes and businesses of those who think they're dealing with the paranormal. They tell me security footage can be helpful, but to confirm an actual home visit would be necessary. Hodge posted she is happy to be able to know her son is always with them. I'm glad that she's happy. I'm, I'm very glad that she's comforted and that this brings her joy um, because I wish more people would have that type of reaction to paranormal activity. I faded out like from reality and the next thing after that I remember was seeing myself on the emergency table and they were working on me trying to revive me. Being brought up this tunnel of light. I was feeling all this love and this acceptance. An hour later, the doctor came out and she said she was fine. Well, for me, that journey began in a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm. It was like being in dirty jello. I called it the earthworm's eye view. Uh, and I was there for a very long period of time. I'm sure I didn't have any kind of memory formation moment to moment. So it seemed to last forever. But the good news is it didn't. I was rescued by this slowly spinning, pure white light with fine silvery and golden tendrils. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we're talking about one of the biggest unsolved mysteries of them all. What happens to our loved ones after they die? Has their soul moved on? Are they in a better place? Or is it all one huge nothingness that we want to try to breathe life into to overcome the emptiness we feel without them? We all know that the answer is very subjective. Religions try to define it. Science tries to define it. They all have their place. We have lots of show-me non-believers. That's natural. We do have hundreds of personal accounts we can turn to. Also, there have been serious studies which indicate that in many cases there is life after death. I believe it. I shared a personal experience with Stephen Martin in an interview I did a year or so ago called In Search of Life After Death at 1001 Heroes. But it's headlines like the ones we just played up front that capture our hearts and give us pause to consider the possibilities. I'm looking now at a Daily Mail headline accompanied by a series of pictures, two of which feature security camera images showing a young man wearing white pajamas standing next to a kitchen counter followed by a picture of the grieving mom holding a picture of her son. And yes, the image of the young man, blurred though it is by the darkness in the room, does resemble the mother's son. I'll post the security cam pictures at Facebook slash 1001heroes, 
"'but I won't show the actual family "'for obvious reasons of privacy. "'The headline I'm looking at reads, "'It looked just like him. "'Mother, 57, is shocked "'when her kitchen security camera "'captures the ghost of her son "'who died two years ago. "'Jennifer H., 57, from Atlantic, Georgia, "'saw a male figure that looked like her son. "'And then the following article. "'A grieving mom claims her security cameras "'captured the ghost of her dead son "'in her kitchen "'after a transparent figure triggered the sensor.' Jennifer H. from Atlanta, Georgia, had been in bed watching TV with her daughter, age 21, when she received a notification on her phone reading, Person Spotted in Entryway, last week. When the mother of two opened the image, she saw a transparent male figure that looked just like her son, who had died two years earlier of an accidental drug overdose. Mrs. H., a real estate agent, claims she is still freaking out after seeing the eerie figure last week, but finds comfort in believing it's a sign that her son is at peace. The exceptionally clear image appears to show a male figure who looks like her son wearing white pajamas in the family kitchen. She said, It's just insane. I'm blown away. It's just crazy. I was laying in bed watching TV with my daughter and I was just about asleep. The phone was laying between us and I got this message notification saying someone was in the kitchen. My daughter said, Mom, there's a person in the kitchen. Mom, that's... I was stunned, and it did look just like him, beard and all. Mother and daughter rushed into the kitchen, terrified by the unusual sighting, but found no evidence of a break-in, and there have been no other sightings since. Mrs. H. said, Now I feel like he was letting me know he's happy in heaven. That brings me some comfort, but I still just think it's weird. I'm in awe. Why did this happen to me? I haven't seen anything since, and I had never seen a ghost before. I was asked, Does it look like him? Yes. His mother claims he was a giving, caring, loving human being, and the pair had even set up a charity to help people battling addiction prior to his death. She said, He was a great kid. He had an addiction, and we thought for sure it had to be heroin when he passed away. But the only thing that we could track down is where he was buying Xanax. He and I together had started a charity before he died, and it was to turn real estate into a way of saving lives and stopping addiction. We won national and local awards for it. He used to try to help other people when he was in need of help, too. And with that, the article ends. For countless numbers of people seeking closure or some sort of acknowledgement that something exists beyond the oblivion of death, headlines and stories like these bring comfort and maybe help to open minds. You can argue that stories like these may set up false hope, but then ask, how in the world can hope be a destructive thing? We will always miss loved ones. All we want to know is, are they okay? And will we meet again? As with most of my stories here, something triggers me to start thinking of a story I'd like to do next. And this time it was two things. The first being a note from a listener asking if I'd done any episodes on this subject. And two, the song, I'll Be Seeing You. It's an old song about missing a loved one, with music by Sammy Fain and lyrics by Irvin Cajal. Both men were successful, but I'll Be Seeing You was their masterpiece, at least as far as I'm concerned. Every time I hear the song, I think of friends or loved ones who have passed on. Bing Crosby had a huge hit with it in 1944, at a time when World War II was raging and the human loss was staggering. The song hit a chord with people then, and it still does. It goes like this. I'll be seeing you in all the old, familiar places that this heart of mine embraces 
all day through. In that small cafe, the park across the way, the children's carousel, the chestnut trees, the wishing well. I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day, in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you that way. I'll find you in the morning sun, and when the night is new, I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. There's more, but you get the idea. Any number of singers have done a version of this song since Billie Holiday started in 1938, including Sinatra, Dean Martin, Kate Smith, Joni James, and a host of others. It's one of those songs that just reaches in and grabs your heart and reminds you of that person or those persons that you miss. The song reflects the thoughts that are common to all of us when we lose someone. We long to see them again. We imagine them standing there near that chestnut tree, or maybe laughing as they throw a penny into a wishing well, or doing whatever people do that we remember them for. It usually comes down to moments in time that are printed on our brains like photographic images, and we try and try to see it clearly, but it's like looking through a veil. It clouds up, the figure becomes distorted, and it disappears. That's the experience most of us have. But then there are those who have seen apparitions of loved ones. Some just hear them. Some just feel their calming presence in a room. Sometimes they appear in a dream. Sometimes the apparition is as clear as life. Has this ever happened to you? Your head's either shaking up and down right now, or side to side, but there's no in-between. Even if it's side to side, I'll bet you know someone who's had the experience. And I'm not talking about the Gettysburg Battlefield ghosts or the haunted houses. Those have a place as well. I'm talking today about people whom you knew and loved. Where to begin? Let's say you're seeking solace and you want to hear from a well-respected person who has crossed over, stayed for a while, and come back. Someone who can validate much of what you've heard, but not quite believed. I'm reaching for one of my favorite books here at the studio library, and it's called Proof of Heaven. I'll walk you through it. It concerns an NDE, or near-death experience. Researchers are starting to rely on NDE studies to learn more about the human brain and consciousness. They're discovering much about consciousness, and many believe, now, that it exists outside of the human brain. If you've already read it, so much the better. For you, this will be a refresher. It's called Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, and it's a 2012 New York Times bestseller, an autobiography written by the American neurosurgeon Eben Alexander and published by Simon & Schuster. The book describes a near-death experience Alexander had while suffering from what should have been a fatal case of acute gram-negative Escherichia coli bacterial meningitis while on a ventilator and in a coma. Alexander describes how the experience changed his perceptions of life and the afterlife. The book was a commercial success, but also was the subject of scientific criticism in relation to misconceptions about neurology, like relating to medically induced coma as brain death. During this state, Alexander's experiences gave him reason to believe in consciousness after death. The story is detailed and intense. For days, Dr. Alexander is kept alive by machines while technically brain dead. His brain is showing zero signs of activity. Yet his consciousness is taking him through a metamorphosis, beginning with a panicky climb through what seems to be a subterranean murk to a place which could only be described as paradise. 
While in this howling murk, he sees a light. He follows it. It opens into a much clearer, beautiful place. In this state, he gains a super-consciousness far beyond anything we experience as humans. He has spirit guides who mentally inform him what this type of consciousness is. God exists there and cares. There's no measure of time. I woke up about 4.30 in the morning with severe back pain, headache, and then the next thing my family knew is I was uh, lapsed into general uh, uh, epileptic seizures. I was in uh, grand mal uh, status, uh, which meant I was just seizing and completely unconscious, and that's when they called the uh, EMTs, took me off to the Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room, um, and uh, did a lumbar puncture, out came thick white pus under pressure. My neurologic exam showed uh, devastation. The reality is I just went deep into coma, and it was a severe case of uh, E. coli bacterial meningitis, which is a real shocker because almost all cases of E. coli meningitis occur in newborns. It's very rare to encounter it beyond the age of three months. You know, how did this happen? Uh, and then I, I deteriorated through that week on three powerful antibiotics. They'd had me on a ventilator from the get-go. One of the unusual features of my near-death experience is that I was amnesic. I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life. I had no language, no words, no knowledge of Earth, this universe. It was a completely empty slate, and that's quite unusual for an NDE. But I think it was important in teaching me some of the deeper lessons. So I was in deep coma the whole time. They had CT and MRI scan data showing that all eight lobes of my brain were affected. No part was spared. And that's why to have an extraordinarily rich experience, far more real than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. For me, that journey began in a very primitive course, unresponsive realm. It was like being in dirty jello. I called it the earthworm's eye view. Uh, and I was there for a very long period of time. I'm sure I didn't have any kind of memory formation moment to moment. So it seemed to last forever. But the good news is it didn't. I was rescued by this slowly spinning pure white light with fine silvery and golden tendrils. And as it came towards me, I realized it came with a perfect musical melody. Not music heard with the ears, because in those realms, our awareness goes far beyond the limitations of physical eyes and ears and a physical brain. But the good news is that beautiful spinning white light up and up and opened up into a brilliant ultra-real realm that I call the Gateway Valley. And that was filled with many Earth-like features. It was uh, a, a world of perfection and ideals. There was no death or decay anywhere. Um, beautiful, lush plant life, flowers, buds on trees, blossoms, colors beyond the rainbow. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing among millions of butterflies, looping and spiraling in vast formations above this, this uh, gateway valley. And in that valley were thousands of beings dancing, lots of joy and merriment. And when I wrote it all up weeks later, I said these were souls. I knew there were souls between lives and that there was this incredible joy and merriment going on. And it was all being fueled because up above, were these swooping orbs, pure uh, spiritual orbs of divine energy, these, uh, which, which I came to call angelic choirs when I had to put a, a label on them. But it was the anthems and chants and hymns that would thunder down from this beautiful chorus of angels above that was fueling this incredible festivity. 
uh, my first awareness of the divine was a sense of a divine wind or a, uh, the breath of God, as I called it in some of my early writings, that blew through. And it was amazing because even though the elements of the scene stayed the same, all of a sudden I realized the incredible power of that divine force, of that uh, causal force of an infinitely loving God. It's all cultures, all nations, going back several thousand years, the stories are always of this beautiful peace, incredible joy and oneness, and that God force of pure, infinite love is so healing. Uh, the good news is you don't need a near-death experience to know this. I wasn't alone. There was a beautiful young woman uh, beside me on the butterfly wing. And she never spoke a word. She didn't have to. She was dressed in the very same simple garb and yet beautiful colors of all those thousands of beings dancing down below. And she looked at me with her sparkling blue eyes and high cheekbones, a broad smile, soft brown hair framing her beautiful face with a look, a look of infinite love. And that, to me, was uh, the essence of the journey. And I think the most important thing for me to bring back was how her awareness came into my mind. And of course, it wasn't as words when it happened, but when I put it all to words weeks later and writing it all up, the message was very simple. And the thing is, I knew her so well from her, her uh, mental, emotional connection with me in my mind, and yet, I realized, and this was especially haunting in the, in the months after my coma when I started reading thousands of near-death experiences to do with the fact that I, I had met my birth family about a year before my coma. But the reality is they were still suffering from the loss of, of that, uh, that daughter, and so they didn't really want to talk about her too much. And uh, uh, you know, what they did share was what a beautiful, angelic, loving soul that she was. Um, and of course, I, I was quite sad as a brother who never got to meet her in this world. And that's why when my uh, birth sister, Kathy, um, she finally sent me a picture. And I received that picture about four months after my coma. And it turns out it was very important that at the same time, because I think I needed some opening in my awareness and in my mindset. At the same time, I was reading a beautiful story in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, uh, life after death and in that she tells a story of a 13 year old girl who had a uh, you know was in coma very sick medically uh, and in this beautiful journey she was welcomed to the heavenly realm by her brother and he was uh, demonstrated to her that power of unconditional love and the beauty of that uh, of God in that realm and then helped her make a decision to come back to this world when she did she was talking to her father about it she said but I don't understand I don't have a brother and he said, well, you did, but he died three months before you were born, so we never told you about him. All this time, his family is grieving and praying for him to return to life. He finally and miraculously makes it back with full memory of what he's experienced and with no loss of mental acuity, crediting the love of his family and their constant prayers for his recovery. It's a powerful story. Proof of Heaven reached the top 10 list in USA Today's 150 top-selling titles. As you might expect, with any book dealing with what can be described as the paranormal, skeptics have done their best to discredit his story. I do find in any of our stories dealing with stories going beyond science and human comprehension that there is an almost manic quality to the efforts of the naysayers. I wonder if they somehow feel that they need to do this to protect their own sanity. If you start looking into NDE, one of the first things you will discover is a fairly recent study done by Dr. Pim von Lummel. 
This study was a very thorough series of research studies that have been published in the respected medical journal, The Lancet. Van Lummel is a cardiologist who was struck by the number of his patients who claimed to have near-death experiences. He designed a research study to investigate the phenomenon under the controlled environment of a series of hospitals with a medically trained staff. In 2001, he and his fellow researchers published his study on near-death experiences in The Lancet. It was the first scientifically rigorous study of the NDE. His book, Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of the Near-Death Experience, shares this research and its implications for understanding the continuity of consciousness. You can learn more about Pym at consciousnessbeyondlife.com. And it's interesting, I've been there and I've looked at the research. In that Dutch study on the near-death experiences of 344 survivors of cardiac arrest, several universal elements appeared in that group's NDEs. In four prospective studies, with a total of 562 survivors of cardiac arrest, between 11 and 18% of the patients reported a near-death experience, and in these studies, it could not be shown that physiological, psychological, pharmacological, or demographic factors could explain the cause and content of these experiences. Through many studies with induced cardiac arrest in both human and animal models, cerebral function has been shown to be severely compromised during cardiac arrest, with complete cessation of cerebral flow, and electrical activity in both cerebral cortex and the deeper structures of the brain has been shown to be absent after a very short period of time, that being 10 to 20 seconds. So we have to conclude that in cardiac arrest, NDE is experienced during a transient loss of all functions of the cortex and of the brainstem. Of course, the scientists have to ask, how is it possible for consciousness and memories to be experienced outside the body during a temporarily non-functioning brain? How could a clear consciousness outside one's body be experienced at the moment that the brain no longer functions during a period of clinical death with a flat EEG? How is consciousness related to the integrity of brain function? And is there a start or an end to consciousness? Scientific study of NDE pushes us to the limits of our medical and neurophysiological ideas, and neurophysiologic ideas about the range of human consciousness and mind-brain relation. Because we have to admit, he writes, that it is not possible to reduce consciousness to neural processes as conceived by contemporary neuroscience. He also writes, the phenomenon of the NDE can no longer be scientifically ignored. It is an authentic experience which cannot be simply reduced to imagination, fear of death, hallucination, psychosis, the use of drugs, or oxygen deficiency. And people appear to be permanently changed by an NDE during a cardiac arrest of only some minutes duration. According to these studies, the current materialistic view of the relationship between the brain and consciousness held by most physicians, philosophers, and psychologists is too restricted for a proper understanding of this phenomenon. There are good reasons to assume that our consciousness does not always coincide with the functioning of our brain. Enhanced consciousness can sometimes be experienced separately from the body. Recent research on NDE also seems to be a source of new insights into the possibility of a continuity of our consciousness after physical death. The findings and conclusions of recent NDE research may result in a fundamental change of one's opinion about death, because of the almost unavoidable conclusion that at the time of physical death, consciousness, with persistent self-identity, 
will continue to be experienced in another dimension, in which all past, present, and future is enclosed. As someone with an NDE wrote to me, he writes, Death is only the end of our physical aspects, but we should acknowledge that research on NDE cannot give us the irrefutable scientific proof of this conclusion, because people with an NDE did not quite die, but they were all very close to death, and without a functioning brain. Without a body, we can still have conscious experiences. We are still conscious beings. That, my friends, is a powerful statement. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back and now back to our story. Just recently I added a chapter from Arthur Conan Doyle's Memories and Adventures into my weekly show at 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, called The Psychic Quest, in which he discusses his personal opinions on the existence of the afterlife based upon numerous experiences he had with mediums. Ever since the late 1800s, with the rise of spiritualism, the press has had a field day with mediums, exposing fraud with glee, and pretty much killing the idea that mediums can be useful vehicles when used in the pursuit of contact with loved ones who have passed. Even today, one thinks medium equals fraud. That's the power of the written word at work. Doyle was a staunch believer in the ability to contact the afterlife. And you can think whatever you want about that, but Doyle was an extremely intelligent man. He also knew that his quest into spiritualism and securing proof of life after death would take a huge bite out of his reputation. And he was right, it did. I'll let him explain. He writes, People ask me, not unnaturally, what it is which makes me so perfectly certain that this thing is true. That I am perfectly certain is surely demonstrated by the mere fact that I have abandoned my congenial and lucrative work, left my home for long periods at a time, and subjected myself to all sorts of inconveniences, losses, and even insults in order to get the facts home to the people. To give all my reasons would be to write a book rather than a chapter, but I may say briefly that there is no physical sense which I possess which has not been separately assured, and that there is no conceivable method by which a spirit could show its presence which I have not on many occasions experienced. In the presence of Miss Bessonette as medium, and several witnesses, I have seen my mother and my nephew, young Oscar Hornin, as plainly as ever I saw them in life so plainly that I could almost have counted the wrinkles of the one and the freckles of the other. In the darkness, the face of my mother shone up, peaceful, happy, slightly inclined to one side, the eyes closed. My wife upon my right and the lady upon my left both saw it as clearly as I did. The lady had not known my mother in life, but she said, How wonderfully like she is to her son, which will show how clear was the detail of the features. On another occasion, my son came back to me. Six persons heard his conversation with me and signed a paper afterwards to that effect. It was in his voice and concerned itself with what was unknown to the medium, who was bound and breathing deeply in his chair. If the evidence of six persons of standing and honor may not be taken, then how can any human fact be established? My brother, General Doyle, came back with the same medium, but on another occasion— he discussed the health of his widow. She was a Danish lady, and he wanted her to use a masseur in Copenhagen. He gave the name. I made inquiries and found that such a man did exist. 
Whence came this knowledge? Who was it who took so close an interest in the health of this lady? If it was not her dead husband, then who was it? All fine-drawn theories of the subconscious go to pieces before the plain statement of the intelligence, I am a spirit, I am Innes, I am your brother. I have clasped materialized hands. I have held long conversations with the direct voice. I have smelt the peculiar ozone-like smell of ectoplasm. I have listened to prophecies which were quickly fulfilled. I have seen the dead glimmer up upon a photographic plate which no hand but mine had touched. I have received to the hand of my own wife notebooks full of information which was utterly beyond her ken. I have seen heavy articles swimming in the air, untouched by human hands, and obeying directions given to unseen operators. I have seen spirits walk round the room in fair light and join in the talk of the company. I have known an untrained woman, possessed by an artist's spirit, to produce rapidly a picture, now hanging in my drawing room, which few living painters could have bettered. I have read books which might have come from great thinkers and scholars, and which were actually written by unlettered men who acted as the medium of the unseen intelligence, so superior to his own. I have recognized the style of a dead writer which no parodist could have copied, and which was written in his own handwriting. I have heard singing beyond earthly power, and whistling done with no pause for the intake of breath. I have seen objects from a distance projected into a room with closed doors and windows. If a man could see, hear, and feel all this, and yet remain unconvinced of unseen intelligent forces around him, he would have good cause to doubt his own sanity. Why should he heed the chatter of irresponsible journalists, or the head-shaking of inexperienced men of science, when he has himself had so many proofs? They are babies in this matter, and should be sitting at his feet. It is not, however, a question to be argued in a detached and impersonal way, as if one were talking of the Baconian theory or the existence of Atlantis. It is intimate, personal, and vital to the last degree. A closed mind means an earthbound soul, and that in turn means future darkness and misery. If you know what is coming, you can avoid it. If you do not, you run grave risk. Some Jeremiah or Savonarola is needed who will shriek this into the ears of the world. A new conception of sin is needed. The mere carnal frailties of humanity, the weaknesses of the body, are not to be lightly condoned, but are not the serious part of the human reckoning. It is the fixed condition of mind, narrowness, bigotry, materialism, in a word, the sins not of the body, but of the spirit, which are the real permanent things, and condemn the individual to the lower spheres until he has learnt his lesson. We know this from our rescue circles, when these poor souls come back to bewail their errors and to learn these truths which they might have learned here, had their minds not been closed by apathy or prejudice. Arthur Conan Doyle believed with all his heart that some earth-shaking revelation would finally occur which would help people to understand. I have really come to respect his work, which went far beyond Sherlock Holmes, for which he is most famous. From fiction, to historical accounts, to theism, to travel, to spiritualism, his life and work covers a tremendous time in intellectual and scientific growth in the modern world, as we traversed from telegraph to telephone, wagons to trains to planes, horses to cars, and gas lights to electricity. He saw it all. It's kind of neat to think you can see all these changes just in his Sherlock Holmes stories alone. 
You might recall just a few moments ago my sharing the fact that Arthur Conan Doyle believed that one day some incredible occurrence would take place that had the power and reach to bring light to the darkness with regard to our understanding of life after death, something that could reach millions of people. Well, it's right here beneath our noses, and it's called the Internet. He would be amazed today to know that here you can find hundreds of people who want to share their experiences. And I'm going to share one very powerful story with you now, which is titled, Evidence of the Afterlife. It's a compelling and hopeful interview. This is brought to you by PrioritizeYourLife.com. That's PrioritizeYourLife.com. It's an interview with author Jane Moe, who gave us the book, Visions of Heaven. I'll leave both references in the show notes for you, as I encourage you to visit the website and get the book. This is one of the best accounts I've ever heard shared on this subject, and you will be amazed and inspired. For those of you who have suffered loss and want to know if there's a heaven, this will give you hope. Welcome to Prioritize Your Life and PrioritizeYourLife.com. Uh, grateful to be back in the studio today with Jane Moe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. I have to apologize to you up front, too. This is probably one of the interviews with one of the hairiest interviewers of all time. <laughs> um, I have some film gigs going on, and my mom especially wanted to make sure that I gave that disclaimer so people aren't like, why is there an ape interviewing people? So. <laughs> Then, as long as my mom is okay, then then okay, mom. Right. So yeah, we got this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, thank you so much for being here. Sure, my pleasure. And, uh, well, I think you know how how I like to roll here. Um, people aren't really here to to listen to me because I don't have any cool experiences. I just get to listen to them and ask a couple questions. So okay, I'd love to hear about why we're here today. I'm an author, and I wrote a book called Visions of Heaven, and it's actually about my near-death experience. In 2006, I went in for major surgery, and it didn't go real well. The reason I know it didn't go very well is because all of a sudden, there's two of me. I'm up here, and I'm looking down at these doctors who are trying furiously to get my heart, I guess, started again. And I remember that I had traveled through this amazing light. And as I got to the end of this light, and I knew I was two people, I turned around and the man was walking towards me. And all of a sudden I knew, wait a minute, where am I? I know. And I said to him, are you God? And the man was really sweet. And he said, I can understand why you might feel that way or think that way. But actually, I am your husband's dad. And I'm like, my husband's dad, okay. Um, but you're dead. And he goes, <laughs> and you're in heaven. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm like, wow, wait a minute. And at the same time, I knew that I was a body and a spirit and a soul. And yet looking down at myself, I could see that there was a body laying down there that was exactly like me, only I was completely different. I had these senses that were like, not just 5D, but like 20D. And I could see and I could smell, and the colors were absolutely incredible. And they were colors that we don't have here on Earth. 
and the colors that we do have here on Earth, I could never possibly explain them because like the gold, I saw a lot of gold and whites and the gold is not like we see gold. It's like, uh, if you can imagine the most beautiful, gorgeous gold in the world with silver mixed into it and yet it's moving and loving and speaking and receiving and that's just two of the colors <laughs> and I looked at um, the man and I said so why am I here and he said well God called you here because he has a message for you and I said okay great what's the message and he said God told me to tell you when you know it you'll understand what your message is and he said, so I wanted to tell you that you were brought here to jumpstart um, uh, this message that you're going to take back to earth. And he said, this is your gift. Your gift is that you will remember seeing heaven. You will remember everything that you see. And I want to tell you, Richard, your husband's also been given a gift. He has been given the gift of faith understanding and believing and he said you'll never believe you saw me so I'm going to tell you some details about my life so that when I share these with you and you share these with him he's going to know that you really saw me so he went on to say I was born in in the Philippines so you can never find a birth certificate but I was born in the Philippines I was raised in the Hawaii Islands uh, when I was a little boy, we ran around and we didn't wear shoes. And so when I came to the mainland and I was a profession, professional, I wouldn't tie up my shoelaces. And he says, so we'll share those with Richard so he'll know that, you know, that you've really seen me because I've been dead for a long time. And then he looked at, at this, turned around, looked at this door and he turned back to me and he said, would you like to see something amazing? And I'm thinking, wait, isn't this amazing enough? And he said, this is the door to heaven. And I'm only going to open it a little bit because you're not ready to see everything that heaven has to offer. And I looked at this door and it's, again, this like silver, white, gold door. But the colors in the door were like welcoming me and wanting me and knowing me, and this music, this unbelievable music that was coming out of this door. I wish I could describe it because I want everybody to know it, but I was, he opened it only maybe a quarter of an inch, just a little tiny bit, and I looked inside and I could see, this was the door to heaven. So I looked inside and I could see heaven and I could see billions of people walking around, but it wasn't crowded. And then I noticed that there are a lot of people who are gathered together, maybe like a city or like a town. And as I was wondering what it was, the image popped into my head that these were families that could be together forever because they lived a godly life here on earth. And as I understood that, I'm thinking, so I can see my dad and my mom and my grandparents when I pass. And Richard's dad turned to me and he said, he already knew what I was thinking and answered the question, yes, families can be together forever. And then I'm, all of a sudden I'm feeling this 
love and this wave of emotions coming from the from within the door and it gave me I can't even say chills goosebumps but also I felt this image of love there was so much love that I was receiving and it was like every cell was leaping for joy like it knew what this love was all about and it was it was almost so overwhelming I, I started crying and Richard's dad his he goes by by the name Junior he kind of picked me up and he said now I want you to look inside again and I looked inside and I could see the Lord sitting in like a chair and and he was taking children up onto his lap and they were children of all ages and I as I watched this happening I understood that there were babies children of all ages and that babies who have been aborted or have been lost in miscarriage they don't die they go to heaven too and I didn't know that and as Jesus was taking a child up onto his lap they were playing with his beard and playing with his long hair and he was listening to them that child and talking to that child but at the same time he was listening to everybody else at the same time and talking to everybody else at the same time and they couldn't understand it so I looked at Richard's dad junior and I said because Jesus can do this and then I I looked around a little more at heaven and he said you only you're only going to be here a little while longer because the Lord said it's not your time he's going to send you back but I saw these this waterfall and these flowers and this water that was falling was like singing praises to our Heavenly Father and to Jesus and you could understand even though it wasn't like in an English kind of language you could understand exactly what this water was saying and then just to give you an example of the life there I looked at this rose and it, it it was like it was calling to me beckoning but at the same time loving the Lord and every petal every little part of this rose glorified the Lord and had like like cells of music and sound and colors these colors that you will never see till you go to heaven because there are, there are no earthly words to describe how beautiful it was and so I looked at um, Richard's dad again and I said I want to go in there I want to go in heaven and he said no I have to send you back now it's not your time and then before I knew it I opened my eyes and I was in the recovery room it didn't hurt I didn't feel anything other than joy but because I was told that part of my gift would be to remember heaven I knew where I was and my husband came and he was so scared because they told him there were problems during surgery and he said Jane Jane are you okay and I looked up and I said I saw your dad Richard while they were operating on me and my husband goes he leans over my the gurney and he goes Jane you couldn't have seen my dad my dad's been dead for 50 years 50 are you okay 50 <laughs> or 15 50 years 50 He'd so been he dead passed away young a long long time 
And I, he said, you couldn't have seen him. And I looked up at him, I said, I did see him. I saw him in heaven. He told me you wouldn't believe that I saw him. So he told me these details. And I rattled off about where he was born, where he was raised, um, details about not wearing, tying up his shoes, how he came to the mainland for college. The whole time I'm telling Richard this, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden he starts to cry. And he's almost sobbing. This nurse comes over and she says, are you okay? And Richard looked at him and he said, she saw my dad. She really saw my dad. And the nurse looked at him and looked back at him and said, you know, we hear this sometimes when a patient comes out of surgery. It's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> and Richard looked at him and he said, it's not weird. Can you tell me more, Jane? So I explained to him that I had been taken to heaven because I was to learn a message and bring it back to earth and share this message. And it took me, and, and Richard said, well, what's your message? And I said, I don't know. Your dad told me when it's time, I would know. And it took me years, years to actually understand the message is there is an afterlife. And I didn't really, the religion that I was raised with, I, I had no idea what happened when you died. The heaven that I saw Paradise. How would I describe paradise? Because I saw oceans and waters and snow skiing and horses and all kinds of sports and the most beautiful images that you could ever see. My idea of heaven was like when I went to Hawaii. Oh, this is heaven. Oh, ice cream's heaven. Oh, I'm having so much, you know, so much fun with my family. This is heaven. And what kind of a father would we have if he didn't give us everything that we thought was paradise? And so that's my message. I realized that we do live, um, we do have an afterlife, and that we always were. We're God's children. We always were. We came here to learn some lessons, I guess lessons. We all know what they are. And then when we return to our Heavenly Father and we have lived the godly life, we receive all the gifts that he has to share. And we can share them with our families and our loved ones. That's quite an experience. That was just kind of the beginning for you too, right? I think that's one of the things that makes your story really compelling. And partly one of the questions I knew that I wanted to ask is why, why do you think it was your husband's father that met you? Do you think there was like a reason behind why kind of your journey started with your father-in-law? Mm -hmm. I think there's two reasons. The night before my surgery, I was, well, I was actually having, I uh, shattered my ankle and, and, oh. and yeah. And so the night before I knew, the only thing I know about Richard's dad is that he died when Richard was 15 and that he had gone in for a simple surgery and had not come out alive. Oh. And so I got down on my knees the night before and I prayed to God, please don't let this happen to me. I, I don't want this Richard to go through this again. And because I knew Richard's dad was in heaven, I thought, hmm, I'll just ask him because he might have more sway with the powers that, you know, that be. So that is one reason I think because I prayed to both 
God and his dad. I think that's one reason. The other reason is because I think if I came back with a story to tell and it was my something about my family, details that I already knew, an ancestor that I was already familiar with, how would I get somebody to believe me? Sure. Yeah. And most yeah. people, uh, yeah. this isn't most people's <laughs> reaction, although now in 2006, near-death experience books were just starting to be popular. The, the story was just becoming of interest. But when I went home that night, here's, here's, here's how God carried on my gift. I went to sleep, and you know how you dream. All of a sudden, I have this dream that Richard's dad, Junior, is there, and he says, Hi, Jane. Now I'm dreaming, so, okay. See, I told you you'd remember me. And he said, I want you to meet somebody special. This is Richard's grandfather, Kilmer Oscar Moe, Jr., and this is Richard's mother. And he reached into an, an area, I can't really call it a cloud, but this, but part of heaven. And she stepped forward and she said, Jane, I'm so excited to meet you. And she said, Richard's not gonna believe that you saw me either. So she named off a whole bunch of details so I could tell him. And when I woke up, I told Richard about my dream and he started crying and said, Jane, you're describing my mother as if she was really here. What's happening? How can this be happening? And I said, I don't know, but I think it has something to do with the message. And so every night, not every night, but several nights a week, I, I would have dreams about ancestors, Richard's ancestors, my ancestors, um, stories that ancestors wanted me to know. And believe me, believe me, Richard would go and check out every little detail to see, you know, if I had all the details right. I always did. And... One time I remember this beautiful lady walks up to me and she says, Hi, Jane, do you know who I am? And I said, no. This was the first time I met one of my ancestors. And she said, I'm your Aunt Carol. I said, no, I don't have. And this is also in a dream. But you know, in a dream, you can talk back to people. And I said, I don't have an Aunt Carol. And she said, yes, you do. I'm your dad's little little sister. And I looked at her and I said, still, my dad doesn't have an Aunt Carol. And he said, Jane, I was stillborn. I died in, in the womb. And he said, but you can tell your dad I live and I went to heaven. And at the end, that the only reason they named me Carol is so that I could be buried into the, in the cemetery. So I called my dad that I, I always write all these things down. So I called my dad the next the, that same day, and I said, Dad, why don't you ever tell me you have a sister by the name of Carol? And he said, because I don't. She's dead. She's always been dead. And he said, well, click. He hung up on me because, you know, <laughs> once again. Um, but he called me back, and he, he, he said, well, do you have any details of her? And I said, yep, she's beautiful. She has blonde curly hair. She told me to tell you that she saw you crying outside the birthing room, 
because back then men couldn't go in. He wanted to go inside and hold her. And she said, you tell my brother he can hold me all he wants when he gets to heaven. And so those are some examples, you know, of dreams that I've had. And I know it's, it sounds, you know, <laughs> but everybody has dreams. The only difference with these dreams are all the details are accurate about these family members and ancestors. And one another important part of my message is our ancestors are waiting for us when it's our time to go. They know, they know that, that it's our time and they're there waiting for you, welcoming you, helping you pass on to the other side. And I, I can't tell you how ma amazing that is to know that when our bodies die, we don't die. Our soul goes on and joins the afterlife. It is a message indeed, and I feel like the fact that you do have some of these details, and what's tricky about things of faith sometimes, right, is that people look for those, and they want to have, like, I need, I need that, I have to have this proof, and a lot of times it doesn't come, but I have to feel like some of these stories are happening now for a reason, and there's people out there that they, they need to know that life goes on and that you, you have an important part with that. And it's part of the reason maybe even why God is like, look, okay, I'm not about this. I'm not just going to say, hey, here's all the details. Otherwise, you don't need faith. But every once in a while, I'm going to help you and give you a little bit and say, like, look, this is real. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody has. Uh, and I think for sure that that's an incredible mission and story that you have. Um, one and thing it I, still takes faith to believe what I'm for saying. For sure, yeah. Because the, people don't know me, and they don't know Richard, and they don't know um, that I have no, knew nothing about his ancestors. And so it still takes a lot of faith. Yeah. But I try. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I took away from it, um, what I thought was really beautiful, something I don't, I, I, I can't say that I am by any means like a near-death experience expert. I... Scott Drummond was a neighbor of mine and I interviewed him and that kind of started me on this idea of like even knowing hardly anything about this particular subject. Um, but part of what I thought you said was really beautiful is describing some of what you saw on the other side of like what we hear would, if those that believe in God is like creation. Um, you know, you can look at a rose and potentially see God in those things, but Absolutely. it's even even more amplified, right? And I feel like I feel that way um, with my personal beliefs, you know, looking at the stars and looking at everything, all the patterns and everything around us that, that you know, there's a creator. Um, but I thought it was really beautiful that that's almost even amplified on the other side to even a higher degree. It's almost like you can hear creation talking to you, which is neat. That's yep. cool. Yep. And every, every ounce of its body, whether it's a tree, a flower, a rose, um, a, a pet, yeah. our pets go to heaven. Yeah. They all amplify this love yeah. for the Lord. And everything that they're seeing, doing, singing, moving is all about loving Him. Yeah. So did that, did that give you an extra appreciation here for those things here? Do you almost like see that a little bit more? I do. In creation now. I do. Yeah. And I... I 
I never really was a tree hugger, if yeah. you know what I mean. But now, I, when I go, I've always walked around every day. But now I look at life totally different. Sure. When I see a worm, I'll pick it up and move it out of the way. When I see a snail, I pick it up so nobody's going to step on it. But that's just that's just part of my reality now. Yeah. Is that everything that's living has a spirit, and everything that has a spirit. We'll go to heaven someday. Yeah. And isn't it wonderful? I touched just briefly on the pets. All dogs go to heaven. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go see who wrote that Disney movie. They knew I what know. was going on, right? I know. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> what kind of father, heavenly father, would we have? Would would we have that would give you something to love so much as a pet? You know, they're family members. Only to take when it dies, take it away. And, well, that was fun. Yeah. yeah, they're always part of our life. I love that. And so in some of my dreams, I've seen uh, Gypsy, my first horse, and I've seen Ichabod, our first family dog, and even the little goldfish that I cried mm-hmm. when we had to flush it down the toilet. Um, I, they're all there. They're all there. So you can take it with you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so last question, uh, that was back in 2005, right? So do you continue, did this kind of open up the other side to you and you still continue to have visions now? I do. From the other side? Yeah. I do. I see people differently uh, as well as the afterlife differently. Now when I look at people, I can sense and understand and sometimes even see the spirits and souls of their loved ones because they're always they're always with you. Yeah. And so and and there sometimes I know things like a woman might be pregnant. I know before she knows. So that's part of my gift. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that gift with uh, our audience today, and You're welcome. I'm sure it will help people. Um, that's a pretty clear, defined message that you came to the realization like there is an afterlife. Hey, well, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to get to know you and to learn some more stuff about the other side that I didn't know about either yet. So thank you. Appreciate it. The truth is that this world and life within it is still full of unexplained mysteries that will never be solved. We are left as survivors to work out life and death, love and loss on our own. As parents, Many of us fall back on the old maxim. They've gone to heaven, and that seems to work as well as anything. Whether it's a family pet or a human loved one, loss is hard, and it helps to have a belief system. I want to believe that they've gone to a better place, and that they're happy. They're with God now, and that they still exist just beyond that veil that separates life from death. It's not scary. It's not weird. It just is. And when you believe, it makes life and loss a lot easier. Thanks for joining us for I'll Be Seeing You, a conversation on life after death. I hope I've opened up some paths for future study and shared some helpful ideas with this story. Please do join us at our other podcasts, and I'll mention a few. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where we bring new stories every Wednesday and Sunday. Then there's 1001 Stories for the Road, where we just started Agatha Christie's best-selling mystery, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, reading two chapters every week, and 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories, and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 
and many others. We list them all in our show notes here. Reviews and shares are appreciated, as our Twitter follows at 1001podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon.